0: And so, from my perspective, getting profitable means you control your own destiny.
1: Hi, I'm Kyle Poyer from OpenView's expansion team, where I help software companies accelerate their revenue growth so they can become market leaders. This season on Build, we're dedicating every episode to a different SaaS benchmark. Think growth rates, unit economics, the rule of 40, and so on. Each week on Build, I'll speak with VCs to find out what they're looking for in a new investment, as well as operators to get the inside track on how to actually hit those lofty benchmarks. This season will also be interactive. You can help us improve our SaaS benchmarks by participating in the 2018 Benchmarking Survey. Visit benchmarks.openviewpartners.com to learn more and find last year's results. Now on with the show. Today's episode is all about burn and profitability, how much a company should be burning to fuel their growth, how startups can cut burn without killing morale, and current trends in the market. I'm joined by Adam Marcus, a managing partner here at OpenView, and Nick Romito, founder and CEO of VTS. Adam, thank you for joining Build. Today we're going to talk about startup burn rates and profitability. Before we start, though, could you introduce yourself to listeners? Sure. Yes, yeah, so my name's Adam Marcus. I'm a partner here at OpenView. I've been here since uh,
0: 2009. I actually joined OpenView from another venture firm called Battery Ventures. Before that, I spent a bunch of years in different operating roles uh, during the first internet bubble. How did you get started in the world of venture capital and SaaS? Right out of college, I ended up working for a bunch of startups. And through that time, I met a bunch of different uh, venture capitalists and was introduced to the folks at Battery. And so in 2004, I believe, uh, I spent time with them and ended up joining Battery before heading off to business school. And then I went back there after business school. When I got out of business school, it was about 2007. So it was very early days. And the notion of SaaS was still relatively nascent. People were trying to understand the model, both from sort of an economic standpoint, but also in terms of physical product deployment. You know, software had been an on premise maintenance license type uh, model for a very long time. In 2007, I started spending time poking at different SaaS models and eventually ended up spending time in the email marketing space. During that, Time I met a gentleman by the name of Scott Dorsey. Scott Dorsey was the founder and CEO of Exact Target, which was an e- early pioneer in the email marketing space and early pioneer, frankly, in the SaaS space. And we ended up investing in Exact Target when I was at Battery. And that was the first SaaS investment that I believe Battery had made. And today they've gone on to build a great franchise, but SaaS uh, at that time was not immediately obvious.
1: And so more than 10 years later, there's still plenty of SaaS startups and SaaS is sort of eating into everything. And, you know, not to say that obvious, but if every software startup were to be bootstrapped and profitable, there's really no place for venture capital. So, like, what's the role of burn and spending more than you're making in a startup?
0: Yeah, so one of the interesting opportunities and challenges with, with the SaaS model is, unlike the prior model where you get a very big upfront payment which would effectively fund your company and then you get a maintenance stream afterwards, SaaS gets paid out more radically, right? So historically on-premise software is much more about CapEx, SaaS is much more about OpEx. And so therefore starting a a SaaS company in the early days is not as capital efficient as the traditional on-prem maintenance models, but creates a lot more value as the company matures because of the predictability of the SaaS model. So Burn can provide two things. One is it's frankly just startup capital to hire staff, engineers, and whomever it may be, product managers to build the product, and then also some early go-to-market people. But two, you know, depending on what market you're playing in, if you're trying to get out ahead and be a category leader, and if it's a nascent market, really develop the market, and so you need to spend marketing dollars to, for messaging and branding and positioning, or if it's in a legacy market where you're trying to take market share from the incumbents, you can spend money hiring salespeople and spending money in marketing to do either. And that's where burn can play a role in the early days. That does change and shift as the company matures, as you start getting leverage from the engineering and R&D team, as well as the embedded marketing spend and sales infrastructure that you've built out.
1: You know, as you look at companies... What are the signals that a company might not be burning enough and should actually accelerate their burn?
0: Yeah, so here at OpenView, we're a pretty analytical bunch. I spent a good amount of time looking at the economics, unit economics of businesses. And, you know, frankly, when I invest in ExactTarget, you know, call it nine years ago or so, people were not nearly that well versed in the unit economics of a SaaS business. Today, it's it's pretty well-known and widespread, uh, you know, Customer acquisition costs, net dollar retention. Basically, how much does it cost to acquire a customer, and, and do those customers stick around later? And not only stay, but do they buy more? A couple of things that might help you understand if you're not burning enough is if you have a customer acquisition cost that's less than 12 months, and in some cases even less than six months. That means you're being you're incredibly efficient at acquiring customers. You probably have great product market fit, and you're probably under investing in your go to market. And so. In that case, there would be an argument that you could burn more money, which is effectively hire more sales reps and spend more money in marketing because you are efficiently acquiring customers.
1: Fundraising goes hand in hand with burn. You've said before that you know there's actually too much emphasis, especially right now, on sky high valuations and keeping up with the Joneses when it comes to fundraising. And you know, Ryan Smith from Qualtrics actually said, "Congratulating me for raising venture capital is like congratulating someone for taking out a mortgage." So, you know, when should a startup know that they are ready for their next round of fundraising?
0: Yeah, so at OpenView, you know, we are what we call expansion stage investors. So what we're typically looking for is a company's established product market fit. They've developed uh, an early but successful go-to-market rhythm in terms of acquiring those customers and then some data on the back end to show that those customers are renewing. And so we'll spend a fair amount of time just understanding those economics and as well as you know market size and other things. But from our perspective, when we look at expansion stage companies, we get excited when the front end of the business is you know payback's less than twelve months. They've net dollar retention that's north of hundred what we call 110%. And so therefore and, and a you know a big enough market, you don't need a multi-billion dollar market, but call it a five hundred million dollar market. You know if all those uh, variables are green, if you know, flashing green or, or certainly solid green, to us that's an indicator a company should raise more money and really invest in their growth and, and really take advantage of the opportunity they have in front of them. And so, in those cases, we're very aggressive about supporting companies and, and trying to be their next partner.
1: And yeah, I guess on the flip side, if you're not hitting those, those milestones, maybe you should work on some operational initiatives to really position the business to be ready to raise more money. And across the industry, do you think startups are burning the right amount or are things out of balance?
0: Yeah, I'd say a couple years ago, things were way out of balance. You know, we'd heard many stories of companies burning two, three or four million dollars a month, which there is this notion of, hey, you want to take market share, you want to take them out and all that kind of stuff. And I know in some cases, investors will encourage companies to do that. But in our view, there really is no situation where you need to burn that type of capital, Feels like at that point you're forcing an issue versus enabling really great product market fit. And so, you know, I'd say today, you know, early 2018, it feels like we're coming back into more of a, a sense of reality on what burn should be. You know, we're typically seeing companies burn somewhere between call 300 and $700,000 a month. And these are companies that are hyper growth, you know, companies growing over 100% a year. In some cases, maybe a million dollars a month. Very rarely do we see companies burning more than a million dollars a month. Conversely, we very rarely see companies that are growing really quickly burning less than $200,000 or $300,000 a month. So you know, from my perspective, I think we're heading to a healthier place. Burn was probably out of control in the 2016, early 2017 timeframe. And today it feels like we've kind of leveled off in a more healthy place.
1: And, you know, I guess if if a startup is beyond that, say, million-dollar mark, that's probably a signal that, you know, they should look at whether they're burning the right amount. But other than that, especially as you sit on the board of companies, how do you help companies figure out, like, are they burning the right amount, are they burning too much, and should they be cutting burn?
0: Yeah, so again, leveraging a lot of the work that we do when we first look at investment— At the board level, we'll spend a fair amount of time looking at the same data, which is, again, the efficiency of the economic model. How are you spending your resources and are they driving value for the shareholders and, and frankly, for the company? And so, you know, we're looking at customer acquisition costs. We're looking at net dollar retention. The other piece of the equation is, as you think about exits and liquidity, you know, nobody today is really excited about buying a company that's burning two to three million dollars a month. And while there have been companies that are going public that are burning money, clearly they are setting a path to profitability and in many cases are showing an economic model that is generating cash. And I think Dropbox is probably the most recent example of that where, you know, from a PL perspective, they're burning cash. But if you actually dig under the covers a bit, you'll see that they built a really healthy economic model and one that is repeatable and driving value.
1: Okay. So say I'm a software CEO and you sold me on why I should cut my burn and, you know, that I'm burning too much. How do I go about that in a way that doesn't harm growth or kill employee morale?
0: Yeah, I mean, really, at the end of the day, the biggest expense for companies is human capital. And so the way we think about it is you, you may have been over-investing in certain areas. So all that entails is slowing down hiring or maybe not hiring for a little while and letting the resources you've hired catch up to the P&L. Right? And so try to get them productive on the go-to-market side. Or on the product and engineering side, you know, as the company scales, you'll start getting some leverage there. And so we don't necessarily you know, recommend anything radical unless the company's had some hard times. But more just look, try to generate leverage in the model, look to the resources you have, and see what you can generate in terms of leverage. And maybe they slow down the pace of adding new resources to the business until you start seeing that leverage.
1: And then at what point should a company be trying to get to profitability, and you know, why does getting to profitability matter as a milestone?
0: Yeah, so one of the things that isn't talked about enough in my view is, you know, there's all these stories of all these companies raising tons of money and it's sort of a badge of honor, but it's now starting to come out that these companies that raised a lot of money, the founders, early management team, they don't own a lot, right? Because there's so much preference sitting on top of the companies. There's just been frankly too much money poured into the business you know, the founder CEO wakes up one day and, and he or she is sitting there saying, wait, I only own 5% or 7% of this business that they've been working tirelessly on for 5, 7, or 10 years. And so from my perspective, getting profitable means you control your own destiny. And it controls your own destiny in terms of you, a shareholder and a founder, but also the business at large and the ability to do what you need to do, right? You're not dependent on having to raise more money. You're not dependent on somebody coming to you to help you take the business next level. And at OpenView we do have a bunch of companies that are profitable, that are growing very quickly at meaningful scale. So it's it's not an impossible thing to do. It's just more about focus and, and can you get the right resources in the right places in the business such that you're generating that leverage and getting to profitability.
1: And are there any companies that you look up to that have done a you know especially good job at going through this journey? It's a good question. Yeah, I think there's a bunch of
0: businesses that that have done a nice job going through the journey. You know, obviously we were really excited to be along for the ride with Scott Dorsey at Exact Target. Josh Coates at Instructure is also a great company and he was able to take a business from about a million dollars of run rate when we invested to public not even five years later. So that was a pretty uh, rapid rise. I think Dropbox, they've done a really nice job building a really sound economic model. There's a bunch of other companies that have gone public recently that have done a very nice job in terms of building sound economic models and, and frankly, not consuming an enormous amount of cash to get to a meaningful scale.
1: Yeah, in the market, it's definitely rewarding. Rule of 40, growth, rather than just growth at all costs. Final question for you, Like looking at the market for the rest of 2018 going into 2019, what trends do you expect to see around burn rates and fundraising? Yeah, I
0: mean, it does feel like we're heading into interesting times. There's certainly an enormous amount of capital on the sidelines. As people have seen, Sequoia is out raising, I think, a 6 or $8 billion growth fund. You've obviously got SoftBank's Vision Fund, but there is this flight to quality where the select companies that are up in rare air, built sound economic models, are growing very quickly in very large markets. appear to have endless supply of capital. And then there's a lot of companies that are what I would call in the gray zone, which, given certain types of processes, may actually be successful in raising, and others may not. I do expect burn rates will continue to maintain where they are now or go down. I don't think we'll go back to the heyday of 2016, or where you know you're in those two to three million dollar monthly levels. I do think you'll see continued excitement around fundraising and big dollars getting put to work in these companies. And and you're seeing some of it play out today. I think we've had a very strong year uh, on the IPO side and on the M&A side. This might turn out to be the strongest SaaS IPO year uh, ever between Dropbox and more recently DocuSign. And so seeing those companies get to real scale, create real value for their shareholders and their customers. I think that excitement around SaaS and where the SaaS market is going is only going to increase, and you'll see these large pockets of dollars chasing those great opportunities.
1: Great insights as always, Adam. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Adam gave us some great insights on burn and fundraising. Now we'll hear from Nick Romito, founder and CEO of VTS, about the tactics he used to find efficiencies after merging with their closest competitor. Nick, thanks for joining the OpenView Build podcast. Today's episode is about burn and profitability. Before we jump into that topic, could you share a little bit more about yourself and your company, VTS?
2: Sure. I'm Nick Romito, the co-founder and CEO of VTS. In my prior life, very much a real estate person. So started out in commercial real estate brokerage, pretty much just out of school. And then after four years of being a broker, where I saw lots of inefficiencies, it got even worse when I went on the investor side of the table. So was actually running and operating office buildings in Manhattan, more or less doing everything on spreadsheets, completely decentralized and couldn't really give anyone answers to any basic questions. And so long story short, saw there was a massive inefficiency in the market. Talked to all my friends, all my peers at other companies and we're all doing things the same kind of old school way and thought I would uh, take the leap, and my best friend and I—we've uh, been best friends since we're 10 years old. Started the business together, and now we're 200 plus people, and still growing. So it's been a fun ride. Yeah,
1: it's a, it's a great story, and you know, going from that position of working in real estate, finding that inefficiency, and then you know, pivoting and becoming a software founder and CEO. How did you prepare yourself for that transition?
2: The entrepreneurial part's really easy. I don't, I don't know that there's a more entrepreneurial business than commercial real estate brokerage. You really are given the resources of a phone and a computer. And it's go <laughs> create opportunities, right? You build your own team. You build your own client list. You, your PL is what you make of it because there's really not a salary to be given. It's commission-based business. So that part was really easy. I'd always kind of killed, you know, eaten what I killed my entire career. I never had a single salary job up until now. And so I was very comfortable with risk. The running a software part is a different story. I would say I took the hard road there. When we first had the idea, it took us probably a year and a half just to get a prototype to market, which probably should have taken six weeks. Because again, when you're nothing about product engineering, now I feel like I could probably do okay, uh, you know, as a computer science major, just because I've learned so much in the past seven years. That part of it was tough. I, I would say what helped was was finding a co-founder who was an unbelievable CTO and educating us on how products should be built and how to make what was in our heads come to life. But there was certainly a transition point of just becoming a technology person versus a real estate person. And the combination of those two things is what's made our business, I think, so successful.
1: Definitely. And you, I mean... So, you got off to that slow start in building the product, but then you started moving really, really quickly and getting traction in the market. And in the early years, you raised a lot of capital, a Series B from OpenView in 2015, and then very soon after, $55 million Series C in 2016. Can you take us back to 2015, 2016? At that point, what drove you to put so much fuel on the fire and going after growth?
2: Yeah, I think every company's different, and I talked to a lot of young entrepreneurs who are starting businesses or kind of are on their journey. And they ask me that question a lot. How much do I raise? When do I raise? And there is no silver bullet. Every business is different. Every market's very different. And and candidly, not every business is a venture-backed business. There's lots of companies you can build and do really, really well for yourself and build a great business without a ton of venture capital. And so we looked at our market and just thought this was a massive market opportunity And we felt like it was a land grab, and so speed was really important to us. I think we're also a pretty aggressive team, so we just were very comfortable moving fast. Uh, And we also had competitors in the market. And so you you add those dynamics together, and it feels like a really good formula for someone to raise significant capital to move very quickly. So those were kind of the – Variables that we looked at when making the decision. You know, no one wants dilution, right? You know, you don't want to give away part of your company, but if it helps you build a really big company, a great company, and a brand that the market recognizes, we thought it was it was the right decision. But I don't think it's for everybody, and I tell people that all the time. Um, so don't raise money just to think it's cool or to read your your press release in TechCrunch. Do it because you think <laughs> it's the right decision, and you can build a great business on the heels of that.
1: That's good advice, and you definitely weren't afraid of going big or going home, given uh, <laughs> your background. How did you make sure you were making the right investments with that funding? What metrics were you tracking?
2: Yeah, so I would say similar to the idea of raising the money or the thought process to raising the money, just as important is who you're raising it from because that really impacts your question, which is what do you spend it on? And I was always very sensitive to bringing on great partners who could help me grow the business. I had never built a company before, a technology company at least, and. I just have always been someone who's very aware of what I don't know. If you ask my investors, it's probably the best thing about me is that I'm very transparent and I try to be a sponge and learn as fast as I can. And so I always thought if I could bring really smart money and great investors into the company and into the boardroom with me that were really going to help us grow the business, it would pay off dividends. And so OpenView is a great example of that. And so when I first met Adam and the team, we were pretty far down the road with a couple other investors, about to get term sheets, and they actually kind of used some of our sales tactics on us to get into which I thought was pretty amazing, and just saw that they were, in terms of enterprise software businesses, knew a lot more than almost anyone else I was talking to. had just seen what it takes to scale a business in a market the size of ours, and that was really, really intriguing to me. It's become a a real thing. I mean, I spend a lot of time with my investors, people like Adam from New and others, um, thinking through real everyday problems that you face when you're scaling and growing as fast as we do, and so in terms of where to spend the money, you know, I actually have, I obviously have thoughts and ideas as to where it should go, but having people who've seen that movie before with you to say that's a great idea, we should do that, or no, here's why is invaluable because once you spend that money, you can't get it back.
1: And you didn't want to go in with that set expectation and having no flexibility to adapt based on the market or advice based on people that have been there before.
2: Exactly. I'd rather I, scar tissue is a very good thing when you're building a company, so bring people who have as much of it as possible.
1: It's good advice. And you know, more recently, VTS merged with its closest competitor, Hightower. The two companies had been, you know, a bit antagonistic from afar, but now actually working extremely well together. Can you talk about how that came about?
2: Yeah, so I think depending on your market, actually in general, I think competition is a very, very good thing. It's sometimes hard to think about that when you're in the market competing. But in terms of creating noise and creating credibility for a product in a market, especially a new product in a vertical like ours, very good thing, right? It makes the market aware that if you don't have one of these things, you're not cutting edge or you're not progressive or innovative. And so it was a great thing for us for a long time. Both companies set out to do the same thing, which is create a standard, right? Create a way where the industry could look at all of their kind of leasing or asset management metrics in a single way, create workflows that actually move the the deal process forward and faster, and our visions were identical. The problem was once we got enough market share, we actually were becoming the antithesis of what we wanted to do because now you're asking the same people to use two systems, which is not what we had wanted. And so we actually started hearing from our customers saying – you're, you're both great companies and great products and just great people. So we'd love it if you just made our lives a lot easier and went to being a single company. Because at a certain point, what we used to be on spreadsheets, it was one spreadsheet, right? It wasn't 50 spreadsheets. You know, In some cases it was, but it just became inefficient. And so I had been on probably 100 panels with their CEO, Brandon. Vendors or, or conference organizers loved to put us on panels together. And so we had a really good, I think, working relationship. While we were blooding each other's noses in the market, personally, we really respected each other. And so that was a great start. And so he and I had a a kind of a brief conversation about, you know, can you imagine a world where we were one company and we could focus on what really matters versus each other? And that conversation started to kind of get steamed pretty quickly. Started with a couple just kind of combos over beers and dinners, making sure that culturally we really got along and had the same vision. And then we brought our co-founders in to see if that would kind of grow outside of the two of us. And then we got the boards involved. And from there, it happened pretty quickly. I think both companies, boards included, knew it was a really good idea. And that helped move things along. The actual integration of the companies went, I think, better than we expected. You know, you know you're know, you going to have attrition and things like that because this is a big change. You know, The two companies, while our vision was the same, I think were culturally very different. We had a very, very much move fast, break things, and that's okay mentality, and they were – they had a value that was craftsmanship, which is not the opposite of what we were doing, but we we were all about land grab, move fast, we're going to break it, but we'll fix it, and they would have rather, I think, taken the extra time to do things right, and I think the perfect balance is somewhere in the middle, which we have now, which is great. So none of our board members have really gone through a private-to-private merger like that. In fact, no one in the market that I would spoken to had, so it was – there wasn't a lot of like really great advice you could get us how to do it, but I think we did it as well as we could have. You know, we we had some good learnings from it, but we focused first and foremost on the culture. It was make sure that the people who are here are excited to be here, we're doing all the right things by them, and then the same goes for the customers. You know, This had to be a one plus one is something greater than two for the customer base, and that's proven to be true. So,
1: Taking a look at the companies before, you're taking two sort of – fast-growing, cash-burning startups and then trying to piece them together, and obviously there's some duplicate functions, some overlapping effort, and just a large amount of overall burn in the combined entity. How did you go about finding ways to eliminate some of that redundancy and become more efficient?
2: Yeah, so it was very much Noah's Ark. I had two of everything upon the merger. So, And it just comes down to making tough decisions, right? I mean, it's not like when you do that you're usually not letting low performers go. It's, it's kind of the choice between two good people, but you don't need to. And so you've got to have the discipline as an operator to say what's best for the company. And one of the main reasons you do things like this is to be highly efficient because at a certain point in a competitive market, your business becomes highly inefficient, right? You're spending way more money to acquire customers. You're spending money on things that don't really matter, but you feel like you have to do them and maybe you do at that point. And so, I think it was all about making hard decisions. And I think if you look at what I had to do, I think I replaced half of my management team at that point with their management team, which has an impact on culture, right? People are thinking, well, why did you do that? You're our CEO. And because it's my job to make the best decision. And that's often the hardest decision. And so I think you have to have the ability to make very non-emotional decisions. Doesn't mean you don't do them with empathy and dignity for people. But if you look at the best CEOs in the world, in my view, no matter what, They do what is best for the company because they know the company is greater than any single individual. And so I try to live my life that way. And the kind of comparison that I like to use is when you're really small, you really operate like a family. When you're like sub-20 people, you are doing everything together. You're probably eating every meal together. You're doing your stand-ups as one team. Once you get above 15, 20, it starts to take the shape more of a professional sports team where you know people can be fired. And the person next to you is expected to operate at the level. And if they don't, while you love them and they're your brother or sister, they can be fired or moved off the team. So once you start to see that transition, is where I think, you know, you become like instead of like the father or mother to the coach. And coaches are really good at telling people when things have to change. And so that's um, it's a critical part of I think being a great leader, whether you're a CEO or a manager or a VP of anything. It's just being transparent making the hard decisions when they have to be made and just kind of getting things done, right? Not letting emotions get in the way.
1: Yeah. I think that's great advice. And looking back on it, you made a lot, you know, a lot of great decisions, but were there any missteps along the way or, or advice that you think others might run into if they end up in a similar situation? Yeah.
2: I think irrelevant of the actual merger itself, I think one of the things that I've really focused on and in hindsight, I would say probably over the past couple of years Wish I would have done better is just the speed of decision making. I think the longer you prolong a decision, the worse it is. Whether it's right or wrong, just pull the trigger on things. And if it's the wrong decision, just if you're an agile development company, make your decisions in an agile way. Move fast, make the decision, and I mean, look at your facts to make the right decision or whatever you think is right, but pull the trigger. I think I procrastinated on a couple things over the years that you know, in some way, shape or form kind of came back to bite me over time. And I've just personally been working on that over the past call of 12, 18 months, because what's worse than making the wrong decision is making no decision. I think that's relevant to anything you're doing, a hire, a fire, pricing, just be agile. Don't make dumb decisions, but make a decision.
1: That's great. Well, Nick, thanks so much for joining Build Podcasts. We really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Build. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. And please give us a five-star rating while you're at it. You can compare yourself to your peers by checking out our benchmarking data at benchmarks.openviewpartners.com. Please help us improve this data and participate in our 2018 survey. That's actually out now at openview.vc forward slash 2018 benchmarks. And outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can follow us on Twitter at OpenViewVenture and subscribe to our newsletter, which is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning. You can do that by going to OpenViewPartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.